0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast Emergency Preparedness in Canada.
1: My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is episode 26 Getting Rad Understanding Radiation Hazards.
0: In this episode, we'll be discussing the highly technical, often misinterpreted, sometimes overblown, but still potentially quite dangerous hazard of radiation. What is it? Where is it? What are the risks really?
1: And what can you do about it? So to make sense of this topic, we'll be speaking to radiation safety officer Trevor Beniston, and we'll also review a few key references and some rad tools of the trade.
0: All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian. Josh, off the top of your head, uh, how many movies can you list involving radiation?
1: Hmm, let me think. Uh, The Sum of All Fears, uh, Spider-Man uh the world is not enough (laughs) james bond yeah
0: there you go yeah well done i mean there's there's lots and lots of them uh believe it or not this is not a podcast about movies but the point i'm trying to make is that there's almost an unhealthy societal fascination with radiation and more often than not the info we get could be a bit more correct uh, as disaster managers, I think it's our responsibility to get to the truth and make sure that the risk decision we make is based on the best information possible. And this can be hard to do, especially when the hazard is is really technical. So to address that issue, uh, I had the honor of, of speaking with Trevor Beniston, who's a radiation safety officer, about the hazard of radiation. But because this is such a technical issue, we do first have to go through acronym, acronym analysis. analysis. And there are quite a few for this one. So Josh, can you take us through the first one?
1: Sounds good. So the first one is the CNSC. So that's the Canadian Nuclear Regulator Commission. And this is the national body that uh, regulates um, uh, radioactive materials and the safety uh, standards around them.
0: Right. On the next one is FNEP, the Federal Nuclear Emergency Plan.
1: Right. And for anybody studying for their IEM exam, uh, your CEM exam, that's a a good annex to know about and who, uh, Mm -hmm. what department maintains that. Um, The next one is the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency.
0: That's also the organization that uh, sort of spearheads Atoms for Peace. The next acronym is NORM, Naturally Occurring Radioactive Materials
1: and uh, a few non-acronyms but important terms to know about Uh, one of them is the sievert so this is a unit used to derive a quantity called a dose equivalent and this relates to the absorbed dose in human tissue or what we call a biologic equivalent for for damage from radiation and we'll get into that a bit more in the interview but uh, one term to be aware of
0: So I think that's enough acronyms to be getting on with for now. So without any further ado, I give you Trevor Beniston in his interview all about the hazards of radiation.
2: Hello, my name is Trevor Beniston. I am the Provincial Radiation Safety Leader for Cancer Control Alberta in Alberta Health Services. Uh, Prior to that, I was the Senior Radiation Specialist for a local radiation safety consulting company.
0: Trevor, thank you so much for joining us on this epic interview on uh, radiation. To start off, can you just bring us up to speed on some of the hazards associated with uh, radiological material or radiation in general?
2: Radiation and radioactive materials have a a large sort of mythology associated with them, largely because uh, they're associated with some pretty negative aspects of history. The Cold War, atomic bomb drops, Three Mile Island... Chernobyl, you know, Fukushima being something a little, a little sooner. But uh, the reality is uh, radiation is not a man made phenomenon. It's not a weapon. Uh, it is a naturally occurring phenomenon, and it's really just energy. Uh, people associate a number of features to radiation and characteristics that it doesn't really have. And that's largely because it's not taught in schools. Uh, we don't encounter it on a a day-to-day basis and when we do encounter it, we don't uh, recognize it all the time. Radiation is simply energy that travels through space. It can come in many different forms. Uh, Light, for example, is a form of energy. So uh, it's a very broad uh, spectrum of phenomenon that all get lumped together, but when most people think about radiation, uh, they're thinking of what we call ionizing radiation which is the higher energy stuff, like X-rays and gamma rays. And when we're talking about risk, radiation has the ability, ionizing radiation has the ability to ionize atoms, break apart uh, chemical bonds. And that is fundamentally what poses a risk to us.
0: Where are these ionizing radiation sources found? So uh, most people will associate
2: radiation with either medical procedures like X-rays, Uh, maybe the cancer treatment or a nuclear medicine procedure. Um, Others are very familiar with nuclear power. But uh, the reality is the vast majority of uh, users of radiation, radioactive sources in particular, are actually industrial and research centers. So a lot of people are very surprised uh, when they hear that radiation is used in an industrial setting. Easily about 800 or so companies uh, throughout Canada are using uh, radioactive materials in some form or another on a daily basis. Uh, A very common one is road construction. Uh, Radioactive sources, radiation devices, are used to measure the density and thickness of a paving mix. And they're used regularly, but people aren't really familiar with it if they're not in the industry. And so they're unaware of how common how regular the use of radioactivity really is.
0: In that industrial setting, is that the sort of radiation that would be harmful? And while you're at it, what sorts of radiation are there, and and how do they interact with us to cause harm?
2: So with ionizing radiation, there's four types. And they're very creatively named alpha, beta, gamma radiation, and neutron. So each type has its own characteristics. Uh, Alpha radiation, very, very powerful. It's like the cannonball of the radiation world but it has basically no penetrating power. So from an external point of view, that radiation can enter your body. Beta radiation is smaller, it's faster, uh, less energetic than alpha particles, but slightly more penetrating. So beta radiation can pose a risk to our skin. Uh, The radiation that most people are familiar with, or at least have some awareness of, is gamma radiation, which is essentially super-powered x-rays. They're pure energy, they're a wavelength, they travel at the speed of light, uh, and they have a very high penetrating power. So they can pass through large amounts of material relatively easily. Most industrial sources out there use moderately powerful gamma-ray sources for their measurements. And so that's a type of radiation that can actually pass right through our bodies. The fourth type is neutron radiation, which is very common in the nuclear industry, uh, not quite as common in the industrial side, but it is able to interact with certain atoms, namely hydrogen, in such a way that makes them very useful for measurement. Uh, Neutron radiation can be very penetrating. It depends what it's trying to go through. So it it can penetrate through lead and steel relatively easily, but actually has a hard time getting through lighter materials like water and wax. So the reason all of these different types of radiation are potentially uh, hazardous to us is because if they collide with the uh, molecules that make up our body, uh, they can break them apart. Unfortunately, the molecules that make up our bodies are fairly large, uh, they're fairly weak, and so if they get hit by this radiation, uh, they break apart, and um, the body does have the ability to manage that, but in large quantities, so if a lot of... uh, breaks occur in a very small area over a very quick period of time, that can lead to health problems for us.
0: What sort of industrial devices are we talking about and how much of a threat are they in the context of an industrial disaster, which is is fairly common?
2: So all of these devices use radioactive materials and radioactivity is simply a process where unstable atoms are breaking down into stable forms. Uh, Think of a radioactive material as a substance that's cooling off. Over time, it gets weaker and weaker or cooler and cooler. The energy it releases, though, is that radiation. Most industrial sources out there use one of three uh, radioactive materials. uh, Cesium-137, cobalt-60, americium-241. And uh, in the industrial radiography sector, Uh, They use another material called iridium-192. The common element for all of these is they all emit gamma radiation, but they all are at different activities. And activity is a way that we measure the, uh, the brightness of the source, so to speak. The higher the activity, the more radiation it releases. Most of these sources out there in industry are not very large. They're just large enough to make the measurements that are required but not so large as to pose a very high radiation risk to somebody. So all of these devices and sources are heavily regulated. I think that's important to point out. Uh, They're regulated through a very uh, strict and rigorous licensing process through the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. And one of the uh, obligations of a licensee out there, so you go and apply for a license, you prove that you can safely use it, and you can properly secure the sources, is inventory control. So if you have a license for a radioactive source, you are now 100% accountable for its, its inventory. Where is it? What are you doing with it? What do you do in an emergency? And so all of these sources that are out there are regulated by a license under a radiation safety program, which is regularly inspected by the CNSC. And the larger the source, the greater the risk the more rigorous those inspections are. So these sources aren't just lying around. They are managed through the uh, uh, radiation safety programs that the licensee or the company has for the source. And that program has to meet the standards of the CNSC before they get permission to possess. And that permission can be revoked at any time if the CNSC feels that the organization is not Handling these sources safely or securely.
0: So, outside of the industrial use, what other sources of radiation and radiological material are out there?
2: So, the, uh, I guess the, if you think of it as the one coin, the opposite side of the coin would be uh, the medical side. So, in nuclear medicine, a variety of radioactive materials are used for diagnostic and therapeutic purposes. With nuclear medicine isotopes, though, compared to the industrial ones, they tend to be a lot weaker because we don't need uh, radiation that can penetrate through steel or concrete or anything like that. It just needs to pass through the body. And they decay much faster. As I said earlier, radioactive materials are decaying over time, and each substance has its own unique half-life, which is the rate at which it decays. Uh, some half-lives are microseconds in length. Others are, are literally billions of years. So most industrial sources will have half-lives in the order of years. Uh, cesium-137, for example, probably is the most common industrial isotope, has a 30-year half-life. On the other hand, with uh, nuclear medicine, we don't need uh, materials that have half-lives of years. Right? The, the procedure is only going to take a few hours to a few days, right? So most of those substances have half-lives that are on the order of hours to a few days. So the advantage with the... Uh, nuclear medicine isotopes is that after uh, a few weeks, even just a few hours, much of the material has decayed away and become inert. So we're dealing with substances now like uh, uh, fluorine-18, technetium-99, and uh, iodine-131.
0: So in that medical context, uh, instead of having a a source or whatnot, how would you become exposed or contaminated by, uh, let's say, a a hospital-based disaster?
2: So there's two risks always to watch out with radioactive materials. The first one is external exposure. So this is where you're exposed to a radioactive source, not by touching it, but from its emissions. So the gamma rays that come off of it, that's one risk. The other risk is internal exposure, which occurs when you take into the body particulate uh, that is radioactive. Once it's inside the body, The body doesn't know it's radioactive, right? We can't sense radiation. You can't see it, hear it, feel it, taste it, smell it. It's totally invisible to us. So once it's inside the body, the body deals with it according to its chemical nature. And that can be a real problem because radioactive materials, depending on its chemical properties, can actually accumulate inside the body. So instead of the body getting rid of it right away, it it hangs on to it. And so the amount of radioactivity inside your body increases over time. And so the radiation produced by that radioactive material continually irradiates your body. And there's very little that can be done at that point once it's inside the body. So those are the two, two main risks that when dealing with radioactive materials, you need to be aware of.
0: So we've talked a little bit about industrial radiological materials and medical radiological materials. Where else might you find radiation?
2: Well, one area that's uh, not well known to the public, but is growing in awareness uh, in the oil and gas and other industries is naturally occurring radioactive materials, or NORM for short. Uh, These are naturally occurring materials that are uh, accidentally pulled up with resources. So we're not going after uranium here. We're not going after anything radioactive. Oil and gas, for example, when they're extracting the hydrocarbons out of the ground... Some of the uh, material that comes up with it have trace quantities of radioactive material in it. Those trace quantities played out in scales and sludges, and the wastes from these uh, oil and gas facilities may have elevated radiation levels associated with them. They're very, very low, and uh, all of the surveys I've ever done for NORM in the past have never found anything high. But when you're working in the oil and gas industry, the last thing you expect is radioactive material in uh, oil field waste right so it poses two big problems one is worker exposure both externally and internally do you have the right protections in place but also disposal so now we have uh, these oil field waste that we would normally go to this landfill now has measurable amounts of radioactivity is that disposal option still valid are we making sure that the public cannot be exposed to it. So it complicates things quite a bit for for those industries.
0: Are there uh, any specific cleanup issues that that arise from decontaminating someone from a a possible radiological exposure?
2: There is, and it really depends on the nature of the radioisotope. If it's really short-lived, so like many of the nuclear medicine isotopes, uh, typically you can store and decay. So you take all the material, you store it at one spot, you restrict access, and you leave it sit there for a few days, a few weeks, and it's all gone. For longer-lived isotopes, it does become more complex. And so you may need to uh, go to the regulator like the CNSC, Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, and look for options for disposal. I know uh, with CBRN in particular, Transport Canada Uh, altered the Transportation of Dangerous Goods Act a few years ago to allow uh, third-party contractors to physically handle uh, not just radioactive materials, but dangerous goods in general after some sort of CBRN incident without requiring uh, special permission. Uh, One of the um, gaps that were identified in our CBRN preparedness as a country was what happens after the incident, after the after you know, life-saving has been done, we've contained the area. Now, who cleans it up and how does that work? And so Transport Canada took the lead on that to help fill in some of those gaps. Uh, with radioactive materials, if it's a man-made source, uh, almost certainly it will end up in Chalk River, Ontario, which is sort of the, the country's repository for uh, radioactive sources.
0: Interesting. So it all ends up there.
2: Uh, a large part of it, yeah. Yeah, uh, the nuclear power plants sort of have their own processes in place, but for industrial users, medical users, anyone using the long-lived isotopes, they almost always go to Chalk uh, River, and it's just a, a, a it's a long-term store and decay. That's all you can do. You can't neutralize radioactivity. You can't speed it up. You can't slow it down. You can't incinerate it. You know, you burn a radioactive source, now you got radioactive ash. So it's a it's a it's a complex problem in the sense of the timescales involved. Uh, technically, to store and secure this stuff, it's pretty easy. But if you've got something that's going to live two, 3,000 years, how do you manage that, right?
0: Has there been a lot of thought into warning the sort of future generations uh, that may come across these, these storage areas?
2: Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion at that on the international level. So the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, Uh, has done a lot of work and provides a lot of guidance to countries to develop their own regulatory programs. And so they they discuss, and I'm not sure if it's really official or not, changing some signs to uh, make them more reflective of the long-term risk. So I think everyone recognizes the radiation symbol, the trefoil. Uh, IAEA has proposed a different sort of sign to be posted at disposal sites Uh, which are meant to indicate long-term hazard. It's kind of a a caricature of a skull with a person running away from waves of radiation coming out of the ground.
0: (laughs) Right back to hieroglyphics.
2: Yeah, pretty much. But it is a a concern, right? If uh, you're looking at managing these materials after a cleanup and the half-life is even just 30 years, typically uh, we use a, a... really rough rule of thumb 10 half-lives to uh achieve a a relatively safe amount safe level you know that's that's 300 years right so that's a a fairly long time
0: Uh, it's so interesting to to try and think of ways to communicate with someone 300 years from now about a hazard that we're concentrating and and storing and and mitigating right now it's not usually on the radar for uh, recovery efforts
2: yeah, in the nuclear power industry, uh, they have to consider their long-term uh, liabilities for that. Uh, one of their, um, I guess, uh, criteria is to not place unreasonable burdens on future generations with their disposal practices. And some of their materials, we're literally talking five, six, seven hundred 700 years before they become you know, relatively safe. Not uh, completely safe, but relatively safe.
0: <laughs> so that's the extreme example of uh, yeah. looking forward... When, when dealing with basically disaster debris management. So in other hazardous materials, we talk about exposure being something getting in you uh, and contamination being about something getting on you. Is it pretty much the same with uh, radiological materials?
2: It is, it is. Uh, radioactive materials are really no different than chemicals other than the fact that they're also producing energy with it. Uh, some radio radioisotopes, Uh, have a natural toxicity to them as well. Uh, Uranium, for example, it's naturally occurring. Uh, You can find it in the environment in trace quantities here and there, uh, a little more in uranium mines. But if you were to ingest uranium, which is naturally radioactive, its chemical toxicity would be more harmful to you than the radiation would. So really radioactive materials are not that different from chemicals, from an internal exposure. But there is a, the added complication and the added hazard of the radiation it emits.
0: What sort of measures are out there to protect yourself or recognize this, this hazard uh, early on?
2: Uh, that's a good question. It, it's really hard. Uh, unless you have uh, some sort of detection method set up, or unless someone tells you that uh, there's a radioactive source in the area or that they're contaminated with radioactivity, there's really no way of telling. Because it is essentially invisible to us, we are almost 100% reliant upon instrumentation to detect it and to quantify it for us so that we can actually act. The good news is that it's really easy to detect. Uh, these materials are always given off a signal, and the instrumentation necessary isn't overly complex, isn't overly expensive. But the, the bottom line is if you don't know to look for it, you won't know it's there, right? And there's there's really no other way to, to identify it. So we rely on either a very comprehensive, very uh, aggressive monitoring, or we rely on someone telling us I've been exposed or there is radioactive material in the area. Those are the only two ways you can find out.
0: So you mentioned earlier that uh, one of the good sources of information, maybe even during a disaster, uh, are agencies that keep track of where these things are. What agencies are out there in Canada? And uh, how would one access these agencies during disaster?
2: So probably the
0: best place to get
2: information on radiation, whether in terms of a radiological incident or just general knowledge on radiation, is the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission website. They have a large section dedicated to uh, educating the public on not only nuclear, but radiological aspects. So there's a, a great section on radiation safety and radiation in the environment that's uh, fairly easy to understand. You don't need to be uh, a science nerd to really figure it out, or to understand it. Uh, Health Canada also has a section on radiation protection and nuclear preparedness on its website. Uh, it Health Canada works in conjunction with uh, the provinces, namely uh, Ontario and New Brunswick, in preparing for mass casualty events that would be of the nuclear type. So if one of the nuclear reactors had a, a major accident or a catastrophe, uh, there is preparedness in place, and there's information online about that.
0: How many nuclear reactors do we have in Canada, and uh, do you know where they are? Uh, So there's one in New Brunswick. Uh, There is a shutdown one in Quebec, that's
2: Gentilly. Uh, And then Ontario has uh, Darlington, Bruce, and Pickering. So there's five sites uh, currently licensed.
0: Have we had any near misses or... Radiological related disasters in in Canadian history?
2: Um, no, uh, the closest that we've had uh, would be back in the eighties. Uh, there was a, a bit of a, a bit of a disaster with uh, some cancer uh, therapy equipment that was programmed wrong, and it over uh, exposed patients to radiation, and ultimately uh, was fatal to those patients. But as far as Uh, A large contaminating event, Uh, we haven't had one.
0: In that case, where do all these safety uh, regulations come from? Usually uh, in disaster management, it it takes an event to really generate any awareness or generate some good controls. Have there been some sort of landmark studies that, that drove the safety around radiological hazard?
2: In Canada, one of the reasons why we haven't had any major radiological incidents has largely been due to a strong regulatory component. Other countries around the world, not quite so strong. Probably the largest uh, incident out there, which really uh, illustrated the importance of of being prepared, was in Brazil in the late 80s. This was a a situation where a cancer therapy device containing a huge source of cesium-137 was abandoned in a hospital, and forgotten, and scrap metal hunters found it, uh, proceeded to remove it, chop it up for the metal pieces. In doing so, uh, breached the containment with that large cesium source. Well, three or four days after, uh, the scrap metal hunters were becoming quite ill got to a hospital. Uh, they were pretty sure, certain that this component or this part of the machine was causing them to become sick. At first, they thought it was bacterial or chemical it was just by good chance that someone recognized the symptoms as being acute radiation syndrome, and uh, they were quickly diagnosed afterwards as being exposed to high, high levels of radiation. The end result was about 250 people were contaminated from uh, that source. Uh, They had identified about 85 residences to have significant levels of contamination in them, and they ended up having to bulldoze large sections of neighborhoods and collect those materials and then develop a uh, disposal response for them. Uh, it was a huge issue. It, it really impacted the entire city. Uh, when they discovered that the extent of the contamination, uh, they surveyed about 10% of the city's population, which at that time was something like a million people in the, in the city. And it really... Uh, depressed the the economy of that city, because everyone had the assumption, the presumption, that going to that city, you'd become radioactive. So it was there was a huge uh, social and economic cost uh, from a, a very innocent, uh, non-malicious event, which resulted in the release of that radioactive material.
0: And I, I think that's probably a trend in all of the large-scale near-misses or radiological disasters is that the the bark is is just as bad as the bite sometimes the reputation um, around nuclear reactors and uh, the threat really generates a lot more concern than or different types of concern than might be realistic is that been the case in
2: yeah and i think the main reason is because unless you work with these materials it's hard to estimate risk and it's hard to understand the risk of a radioactive source i think people can understand quite easily that the more radiation you're exposed to, the more harmful it is to you, but it's that context. How much is too much? How big is big, right? Many people are working under the presumption that any exposure to radiation and you're immediately harmed. Uh, We know that's not the case. Uh, We know that below a certain level, it's really unclear if there's any impact on the body. Uh, Hard to make regulations around that though, so we presume that there could be harm. And all our regulations are based on minimizing exposure, minimizing our contact time. Understanding that the science shows well, it's pretty pretty fuzzy and gray at the low end of the scale. At the high end of the scale, yes, we know that there's going to be consequences. How we go from low to high, really technical, and most people just don't understand it or aren't aware of it. So it's pretty hard to make a risk assessment when you're not uh, when you don't fully understand it, right?
0: So if recognition is really the key, what? tips or what thoughts might you pass on to a disaster manager who's taking on a a potential radiological hazard? Or uh, how could we incorporate some more awareness into our everyday practice when dealing with disasters?
2: So the first thing would be training, training and awareness. I I found in my own uh, career working with these materials, if you don't know what questions to ask, then you don't ask them. So train, uh, awareness training is really important, just even to understand what, what radiological is, what the hazards would be. And I would also say the, the other big thing is, is never make an assumption with radioactive materials. It's very easy to get either complacent or you think, oh, it's, it hasn't happened like this, so it will never happen this way. If there's ever an incident and there's the, the chance that radioactive materials could be involved, it's best to get it confirmed whether or not radioactive materials are present and then proceed as opposed to, well, assume that they're not there and then find out uh, down the road that, no, there were some radioactive materials involved. Detection is key, but it's also hard to implement because uh, you can't be surveying every little thing for radioactive material at all times, right?
0: I like what you said there that uh, sometimes you don't even know what questions to ask. What questions should we be asking?
2: Well, hopefully, uh, you know, if someone is is coming into, say, a hospital or there's been uh, some sort of large uh, accident, people who are first on the scene are able to recognize whether or not radioactive materials were involved. Transportation accidents, for example, generally it should be fairly easy to identify because it would be a requirement for larger sources to have uh, the TDG placards, the class 7 placards on the vehicle. Not all sources require placarding, though, but all containers will have some sort of labeling. Uh, the manifests that are involved will identify if radioactive materials are present. For, let's say, a hospital where there are people coming in that have been exposed to chemicals, I think one of the questions has to be asked, were any of those chemicals radioactive?
0: Fair enough. So, call the experts is the, is the final takeaway there.
2: Yeah, if there's any any type of uh, concern, I would I would call somebody who's better uh, better versed in, in radiological matters. Yeah.
0: Excellent, Trevor. Thank you so much for this epic interview. Uh, it's been rad. You're welcome. And I hope to have you back on on the show to talk more about this hazard and how it might interact with our disaster management practices. It was my pleasure.
1: Great. Well, that sounds like a wonderful uh, concise. Description about uh, radiation. I really appreciate uh, the ability to communicate technical information in an understandable way. And when it comes to radiation, um, I think that's a really important uh, skill to have.
0: Yeah, something that that really clicked for me was his explanation of radioactive materials as cooling off by releasing energy. It definitely helped me to understand the process a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean, not to get too much into the weeds with tactics, but when you come to response, I mean, that's an an interesting concept that you can let a material, uh, you know, isolate it and actually uh, understand its half-life and and let it not become a problem anymore.
0: Yeah, that that contain and and, uh, decay approach was something I hadn't really put a name to before. I do kind of wish that other hazards got that same amount of attention. You know, it's so regulated and so well-controlled that even some of the most catastrophic forces in existence are really well mitigated.
1: Yeah, and I think having some of these concepts like norm, uh, you know, are, are helpful in uh, explaining a concept that has a lot of dread risk associated with it. Um, you know. When it comes to risk communication, uh, radiation is, is kind of in its own unique category because it's something that many people don't understand uh, and are quite intimidated and uncomfortable uh, by. Um, so as much as you can normalize these, these concepts and, and express it in a way that's understandable, I mean, that's huge when it comes to, to crisis communications.
0: Now, what I found interesting uh, was he mentioned that there really haven't been any Canadian disasters, and he's quite right. We have had zero fatalities related to to nuclear power plant meltdowns or anything like that. However, we have actually had several incidents in Canada. For example, did you know that we are the home to the first ever major nuclear reactor accident? Really? Yeah, in in 1952, uh, in Chalk River Labs, it was the largest reactor at the time and it exploded. Wow. And there were no fatalities. Which is really interesting. You know, the disaster wasn't actually the incident. It was the cleanup of the incident and the management of contaminated materials and especially the the water that was used uh, for the reactant coolant. And and it was all about burying and containing and letting it decay in a a really safe manner. And that was the disaster.
1: I can imagine. And and that's 1952, so people would have already been primed to concepts about radiation.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the way that radiation is interpreted, and I think that's a good segue into our journal club for today. Uh, the article that I'd like to cover is called Three Mile Island, Chernobyl and Fukushima, an analysis of traditional and new media coverage of nuclear accidents and radiation. It's by Sharon M. Friedman, and it comes from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. So I like this particular article because it has everything to do with awareness and it doesn't really dip into the highly technical aspects of radiation. Uh, it starts off way back in the day with the Three Mile Island incident, which is widely known as probably the worst Crisis communication practices of all time. (laughs) Yep. Uh, You know the the uh, the interviewers and the and the media were asking. uh, So are we all going to die? And essentially, the people in charge of Three Mile Island said, "I don't see how that's any of your business." (laughs) Um, So things have progressed a little bit since then, from very little information uh, through Chernobyl, where there was, you know, a lot of reporting, but uh, the interesting thing about this article is that it analyzed the reporting style based on both the competence of the journalists, which was lacking because there wasn't that clearly explained uh, method of understanding radiation, and also in terms of the classification systems that were used. So one common classification system um, that has been used in the media quite frequently around radiation hazards was how many chest x-rays or how many medical procedures it was similar to. And this didn't really click with people. Um, So there was still some confusion during the Chernobyl incident and, and the risk really wasn't well communicated. Fast forward to the Fukushima disaster and we are just inundated with information all over the internet all over uh, youtube and social media Um, but there's still a bit of a lack of analysis and i think the connecting feature that was really well highlighted in this particular journal article was the interpretation of the radiation hazard how do we classify it how do we express it in a way that makes sense to people and uh, to me that's actually a really useful way of thinking about risk communication is how what do we compare it to in a, a everyday sort of sense
1: absolutely and you know one of the things i like that the authors included in their um, analysis and they have a quote from one of their uh, uh, interview sources it says The problem wasn't getting expert sources; it was vetting expert sources. And I think this really speaks to the times that we're in, where you know there's lots of experts out there. Um, One of the concepts I like about hazardous materials response is never trust an expert; (laughs) trust but verify. And they have this concept of uh, the three expert rule, where uh, you always want to confirm information at least three different sources. So either three experts or three different kind of trustworthy, incredible sources um, before you make a decision. And I think uh, when it comes to risk communication, that is uh, uh, equally important in terms of maintaining credibility. All right. Well, why don't we move on to our tool of the trade for this episode? Um, so this, uh, again, deals a bit with risk communication. And I think this is a very useful tool for emergency managers to be aware of. It's called the INES Event Scale. And this is a uh, international... Uh, tool. It's called International Nuclear and Radiologic Event Scale. And it gives us a common working language or a nomenclature to describe uh, objectively the severity of a nuclear incident. So if you think to things like earthquakes or tornadoes, there are standardized scales that tend to be logarithmic, meaning that, you know, tra- dramatically escalate as you move up, um, that are quite helpful in risk communication. And even the lay public knows, you know, the difference between a, um, a Richter, you know, two or a four um, scale earthquake. They know, you know, that, you know, it's much worse. And same thing with the F scale for, for tornadoes. So this uh, tool was developed as a uh, international, Um, kind of working language to help you describe the severity of nuclear incidents and it's a seven point scale and again it is logarithmic so one is considerably worse it's a you know tenfold increase every time uh, much worse than seven and the terminology they use first of all for something that has no safety significance let's say for example Maybe there was a security breach at a uh, nuclear uh, power facility, but there was no threat at all to the public, the threat had been contained, um, there was no, um, you know, no actual uh, exposure of any materials or anything like that. That would be a below-scale incident with no safety significance. And as you escalate up, the first three levels are known as incidents. So the uh, level one is an anomaly, and these are all defined. And you can, I uh, will post this on Twitter. You can look at this uh, document. Level one is an anomaly. Level two is an incident. Level three is a serious incident. And then after that, it switches from incident to accident. And accident, obviously, is a red flag term that the public understands. If you say there's been an accident at a nuclear power plant, that carries much more weight than an incident, and that goes for level four, five, six, and seven. Level seven is a major accident, and the other terms are kind of graded, again, by different criteria. And this is helpful communicating to the public and also communicating within emergency managers. And I think using these tools and incorporating them in your local emergency planning efforts can be helpful to escalate a response as well and, uh, and also um, provide some uh, kind of technical grounding in your, in your planning efforts. So a great uh, tool to be aware of, and I think it's uh, important not just for, for planning, but also risk communication. Yeah.
0: Another fun tool of the trade that uh, we discovered in the course of of doing this podcast is called the uh, BED. It stands <laughs> for the banana equivalent dose. Uh, I really like this. <laughs> it's It's an amazing way of sort of communicating the sometimes exaggerated risks of of radiation and it relates different activities and different uh, risks to eating a number of bananas that have potassium that could potentially expose you to some radiation so a few quick stats for you the radiation exposure from consuming one banana is approximately 1% of your average daily exposure to radiation, uh, which is 100 banana equivalents. So uh, you have to eat 100 bananas a day to get your daily dose of of radiation. And the lethal dose of radiation is uh, comparable to about 35 million bananas. So I don't know how useful this tool is in in everyday uh, situations, but I think we can all agree that you should not eat 35 million bananas.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I find this tool is very helpful uh, in my clinical work. And I use this um, often to explain to patients radiation doses. And when you're trying to, uh, especially with the parents and, and people who might be anxious about getting uh, certain medical imaging and, and things like that, it can be helpful. Uh, and it's very easy to fall into jargon um, uh, when you're talking about radiation. So I found it a useful tool. It's got some great infographics online, you can just search for it. Um, and I think it's a helpful, again, a, a risk communication tool.
0: Mm-hmm. It really is all about risk communication, even in a technical field like this.
1: Right on. Well, uh, that's it for this episode. But just before we go, I'd like to take a moment to mention the Alberta Podcast Network, which EPIT is a proud part of. Uh, The APN is a community of creative, collaborative, local podcasts and podcasters, which helps support the wonderful world of podcasts. So you should absolutely check out some of our sister uh, podcasts and the website at albertapodcastnetwork.com. And I'm sure there are some other uh, shows out there that'll be interesting to you.
0: We should also mention that this episode is sponsored in part by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your energy from. If you choose Park Power, your money stays local. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits, that are working to make a difference in their communities. Check them out at parkpower.ca.
1: And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Trevor Benison for sharing his time and expertise with us on this important topic of radiation emergencies. If you'd like to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca, send us a tweet at username epic underscore, underscore podcast, or visit the website epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. As always, Epic
0: Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or
1: organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast.
0: Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian.